Boston Confidential, Bean Town's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Just wanted to touch base a little bit from our last episode on the Teresa Corley murder in Bellingham, Massachusetts in 1978. I got a little bit of a blowback on how aggressive I was on describing the police investigation in that case. And to be quite frank, it was sort of mild compared to some of the other information I couldn't report. So that information stands on its own and I leave it to do so. So I'm hoping there'll there'll be some action on this case pretty soon, but I'm not entirely certain. The Corley family has suffered for 42 years, and they've been treated pretty shabbily, I think. So if you haven't listened to those last two episodes of Boston Confidential, go back and give it a listen. Also, I ask you to share those two episodes specifically. This case needs some attention on it. Also, I just wanted to relay a terrific podcast I've been listening to. It's called LISK, L-I-S-K. And it stands for Long Island Serial Killer. The podcast is phenomenal. And there's also an associated documentary on one of the streaming services. Forgive me, I forget which one it was. Netflix or Amazon, I believe. So check out the podcast list and check it out on the streaming services. You won't be disappointed. Okay, guys, today we're on to the case of Adam Leroy Lane. And we don't have to jump back in the time machine that far, but it was 2007 in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Chelmsford, Massachusetts, in case you're not familiar with it, is a beautiful community. And I did a little bit of research on it, and I was surprised to find that the population of Chelmsford is 35,000. And the reason I was so shocked at that is it's such a beautiful town. It's almost a Norman Rockwell-type feel to it. And for me to learn that it has 35,000 people, I was just shocked. I guess it's spread out pretty far. It's about 35 minutes to Boston by car, but don't go from Chelmsford during rush hour. Rush hour is very bad in Chelmsford going towards the city. A lot of people do work in the city of Boston and commute, but they also work in Nashua, New Hampshire. It's about 20 minutes from Nashua. And a lot of people in Chelmsford do their shopping in tax-free New Hampshire. Chelmsford borders Lowell, Mass, L-O-W-E-L-L. It is a former mill town, and it currently houses the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And a lot of people on the Lowell side of Chelmsford work at the university as well. So this case is the American nightmare. Okay, so imagine this, if you will. It's Sunday night, July 29th, 2007. McDonough family of Chelmsford had settled in. The family consisted of mom, Jeannie, dad, Kevin, Shay, 15, and a brother, Ryan. 
Shay had spent Saturday night at a party and she was hanging out with a friend who had also attended. And she ultimately wanted to sleep over her friend's house. Well, mom, Jeannie, said, no, you can't sleep over your friend's house. You have swim practice. There was some conditioning stuff the swim team had to do for the upcoming school year, and practice was early in the morning. So mom says no. The brother Ryan was out at a friend's house. He did get permission to sleep over, apparently. So it was only Shay, Kevin, and Jeannie in the house. So mom and dad had settled in to watch the Red Sox game, and Daisuke was pitching, and the Red Sox were playing Tampa Bay. But Kevin had to get up at the crack of dawn for work, and they all started to settle in. But the only problem was the AC on the second floor was on the fritz, and they went back and forth a little bit. Kevin promised to get it fixed, but it was hot up there. And ultimately, Shay went into one of the guest bedrooms that did have AC. It either had AC or a ceiling fan, so it was much more accommodating for the summer heat in New England. So it's a normal Sunday night at the average American household. Shay's a little pissed off. She couldn't sleep over, but she kind of understood and didn't fight back on it that much. Kevin and Jeannie went to bed. It was hot up there. They dealt with it. That's what New Englanders do. We deal with things, especially the weather. So getting ready for work, they got to hit the sack, and now they're off to slumber. A short time later, or what feels like a short time later, about 4 a.m., they hear some banging against the wall, not screaming, but some muffled noises. They both wake up, Jeannie and Kevin, look at each other and say, I'll go check on her. They thought, you know, typical teenage nonsense. She's up doing something she shouldn't. Little did the McDonough family realize the Chelmsford police were chasing a prowler, somebody looking in windows, dressed in black, a big hulking figure, not at one other home, but two other homes. They're chasing him around. He's going from house to house, at least two houses in the immediate area. And on the third house, this loser's luck would run out. So it was just before 4 a.m., and Shay McDonough was awoken to a lunatic straddling her with a knife to her throat. She originally thought it was a gun, but it was a 15-inch hunting knife. Shay didn't know what was going on. She opened her eyes, and he said, if you fucking move, I'll fucking kill you. Sorry for the vulgarity, that's what he said. And as Shay came to, she came around, and remember, this girl's a swimmer, she's an athlete. She starts to kick. Good move, Shay, by the way. And that causes the headboard. Remember now, Shay is not in her own room. She has her own room, but it was stifling hot, and she was in the guest room where there was some circulation. So that causes the headboard to hit the wall. And that's adjacent to mom and dad's room. Mom wakes up and kind of looks around a little bit. She notices Kevin's awake. I say, what the hell is that? They go into the room and what they see is absolutely horrifying. They see the hulking presence of a crazed murderer. They didn't know it yet, but this guy was about six feet tall and 250 pounds. He had his gloved hand over their daughter's mouth and something against her neck. He was clad in all black and had a mask on. Both parents thought this had to be some type of prank. Was it Ryan, you know, just trying to scare his sister? Maybe even worse, was it a boyfriend? 
you know, acquaintance, somebody trying to scare Shay, somebody with a crush on her, stalker, if you will. But no, this was a grown adult. They could see that pretty quickly. And the parents jumped into action. So Kevin calls out to this figure, hey, what are you doing? And he sees Kevin and turns, and both parents can now see a very large knife, 15-inch hunting knife. And they knew immediately this is going to go south quickly. And they leapt to it. They leapt into action. God bless them. The husband, Kevin, gets there first, and he puts a clamp on this guy's arms, his hands. And he screams knife because he didn't know if his wife had seen that this guy was armed. Kevin struggles with this guy, and he says to his wife, take the knife. And Jeannie's trying. She's trying her best, but the knife is kind of flailing about now. And she did what she had to do. She grabbed the blade with both of her palms. Imagine that. And it cut her deeply. Initial reports in the press stated that they were minor injuries. No, these were gashes, and she soon started bleeding pretty heavily. So Kevin now is enraged. He's only about 160, 165 pounds, but he's wiry. You know, he's a workaday fella, and he puts the clamp on this guy. He eventually puts him, not in a headlock, but almost like a backward headlock, and he puts his arms around the esophagus, and he's cutting off the air supply, and that worked. That took some steam out of this maniac. So as soon as that happens, Shay jumps up, and she runs with her cell phone and calls the police. But what happened in 2007 was all cell calls went to the Mass State Police. Then the state police would dispatch them from there. So it didn't go directly to the Chelmsford Police. That took a while. But eventually, the Chelmsford Police were alerted, and they had an exceptional response time, an excellent job by the Chelmsford Police. A patrolman, Murray, arrives first, and he did the right thing. Rather than waiting, trying to stage for a crime scene, SWAT units, all that, he goes right in. He goes right in to the room, pulls his weapon, and draws down on him and tells him, what the deal is going to be. So excellent job. Other chumps with cops were right behind them. And pretty quickly, they ascertained that this was something more than a regular burglary, right? This was a home invasion. This guy, they found him with the 15-inch knife. He had another knife strapped to him. I believe he had zip ties. He had black gloves on. He had a mask on, and he was clad all in black. So pretty quickly... Detectives on the Chelmsford Police Department ascertain that this was not typical of the crimes they see in this small town. I neglected to mention that during this struggle, this guy almost gets free and Kevin jacks him up pretty good. And I like Kevin already and I've never met him, but they start asking him questions as, as this is going on. Why are you doing this? Lane says, I just wanted money. And Kevin a couple times calls him a fat F. So <laughs> he kind of stands out in my book and I'm putting a check by his name. Might be a guy you want to have a beer with. So the Chelmsford police at the scene conduct a cursory search, a weapon search of Lane. And they come up with naturally the 15 inch hunting knife. Shay had reported a gun, but it was really just the knife against her throat. But he had another knife with a retractable blade strapped to his leg. He also had links of wire. So this was a guy who was not looking for money, I don't think. I think he would have took the money, but that wasn't his primary intention. He was a killer.
So Adam Leroy Lane was cuffed and stuffed, as they say, and taken to Chelmsford PD. And McDonough's kind of felt like they had just come across a nut and he was looking to rob them. But pretty quickly, the investigation ramped up and it was obviously more than that. Chelmsford police get him down to the station and he says he is a truck driver and he had left his tractor trailer at a truck stop and he walked through the woods to the McDonough's homes and those other homes that I had previously mentioned. Things take a chilling turn pretty quickly when they search the tractor trailer and they find a DVD called Hunting Humans. This movie has been described as a diagram or a how-to, basically how to become a serial killer without getting caught. And this guy didn't follow the lesson plan because he's a mope. But other than that, things started adding up. There was some more zip ties in the tractor trailer and all this other stuff. So the McDonough's were shocked to find out that this guy was, in fact, a serial killer and he recently became one. And on July 13th, he killed his first victim, and her name was Darlene Ewald, who lived in West Hanover Township near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She was stabbed and killed at about 2 a.m. on July 13, 2007. Adam Lane used the same type of MO. He had parked his tractor trailer nearby and walked to this home and committed this homicide. There was something different about it. Darlene Ewalt was 42, and she was talking on the phone on her own patio when Lane snuck up behind her and slit her throat and stabbed her to death with a long knife. Her family was sitting right inside the house. So this guy is just a maniac. He tries to minimize what he's done and his motivation. There was no money to be had in this. She was out there talking on the phone, and he just stabbed the hell out of her and cut her throat. Four days later, a woman by the name of Patricia Brooks, who lived in a rural section of York County, Pennsylvania, Patricia was stabbed. She survived, but he stabbed the hell out of her. His modus operandi was similar. He parked his truck nearby checked for open doors and walked into her house and stabbed her while she was on the couch. It's unclear from my research if he took any money from the house, but he intended to kill her. He left her for dead. Adam Leroy Lane struck again on July 29th, the day before the attack in Chelmsford. And this time his victim was a 38-year-old New Jersey resident, Monica Massaro and she was killed in Bloomsbury, New Jersey. I'm not familiar with that section of New Jersey, but it is north of Trenton, New Jersey, but it actually seems closer to Allentown, Pennsylvania. And Lane used the same type of MO. He parked a mile away in his tractor trailer and walked through to Massaro's residence. And the killing of Massaro is the most vicious yet, he had stabbed her, but he said in his confession that he had the knife to her throat and she moved her throat and basically cut her own throat. And at that point, he reasoned, I'll make this look like a crime of passion. And he stabbed her in the breasts 
vagina and stomach. I don't think that's how it went. I believe this guy's a full-on maniac. And again, he's trying to minimize it. The only mistake Monica Massaro made was leaving her back door unlocked. And she lived in a duplex. One side was locked. Lane tried that one first. Hers was open and he went in and just did the unspeakable. Monica Massaro, by all accounts, was a great person. She had a small business. She cleaned houses, did it on her own. She was a massive fan of Aerosmith. And when the police discovered her, they discovered her because her clients became worried about her. She didn't show up for work, and that was just wasn't like her. And they did a well-being check at her house, and the police found that horror show. So I always feel for the victim in these cases, but sometimes I stop and think of the police who have to go through this. They see the worst in humanity, and they see people splayed out, stabbed in the head, neck, breast, vagina. And this guy did it. This guy put them through that. So just an asshat. So Lane continues on his truck route from New Jersey to Massachusetts. And basically the next day, Sunday night, the 29th, into the early morning hours of the 30th, that Monday, he strikes again in the McDonough household. And I pause to think what would have happened if their air conditioning was in fact working in Chelmsford that night. I think you would have had a place, a crime scene, like you did in Bloomsbury, New Jersey, with Monica Massaro. All right, guys, so you may be asking yourselves, what in Lane's background would bring him to this moment in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Chelmsford, Massachusetts? Really, there's not a hell of a lot out of the ordinary. He was born in Yadkin County, North Carolina. It's a rural farming community. He dropped out of school at age 16 and began a series of menial jobs. He had worked in a slaughterhouse hanging chickens, whatever that means. He appears to have been married twice. And I get this information I'm talking to you about now from a book I read. It's an excellent book. The name of it is Caught in the Act, A Courageous Family's Fight to Save Their Daughter from a Serial Killer. And that was by Jeannie McDonough, the mother of Shay McDonough in the Chelmsford case. And it's an excellent book. It's on Amazon if you want to check it out. This is really the only place I saw background on Lane. So if you're interested in the case, you might want to pick this up on Amazon. People in Lane's life say he looked down on women for no real reason, but it turns out he was abusive to his mother, physically and verbally abusive. One of his ex-wives said that he used to beat on his mother. When the mother was reached for comment on this, she denied it and said her child is not a serial killer and all this BS. But, you know, he admitted to this eventually, actually pretty quickly. Lane was involved in a pretty major car accident at one point. He struck a van where the operator of the van had a heart attack. That person ended up dying. Lane was injured. He ended up having two back surgeries as a result of this accident. It was on at least partial disability. He got a few settlements and all that. He eventually went back to work as a tractor trailer driver, and that took him up to 2007. People who worked with him said he was 
very difficult to work with, argumentative. I think I called Jared Remy a walking a-hole in one episode, and now I'll apply that to Mr. Lane as well. Nobody wanted to work with him. Even people he'd pick items up for, he worked for a Virginia-based trucking association where he'd pick up plants and stuff up and down the East Coast. The owner of that business said he had to reprimand Lane several times just for these interactions you normally have when you pick up materials to take them other places, loading the truck, whatever. He was impossible to work with. So I see his relationship with his mother as having some bearing on how he looks at women, but you don't hear what you usually hear when serial killers are caught, where they had a horrific childhood and they had been abused sexually and physically. I don't see any of that in this research, and the book is very well done. So maybe he just has a screw loose and hates women. Maybe that's the gist of it. The strange part about hating women. He's got three daughters. He was married twice. By all accounts, he had treated his daughters well, but other people described him as very volatile. So the guy is kind of a question mark, and he hasn't done the usual type of interviews. You know, you get some serial killers in there, Richard Ramirez, even Arthur Shawcross. They'd do some interviews to try to explain what happened to them as children, what brought them to their serial killing ways. This guy, Lane, has been almost totally silent. Okay, so you're probably wondering what happened to trial here. Well, there was so much evidence against Lane. We'll start in Massachusetts. That was the first time he'd seen the inside of a courtroom. So the evidence was overwhelming. They had the two knives. They had him in custody. He was literally caught red-handed. And by red-handed, I mean through Jennifer McDonough's blood on the blade of his knife. And that would come into play later in other court proceedings. But he ended up taking a plea bargain in Massachusetts. And he pled to 25 to 30 years imprisonment for the attack on the McDonough family. Charges were a home invasion, assault and battery, a whole host of felonies. So if he was going to stay in Massachusetts, I, I don't believe he ever would have gotten out of prison. He probably would have done close to the 30 years. But he had appointments in New Jersey and Pennsylvania as well. And those kind of went quickly until we got to Pennsylvania. In New Jersey, Lane was sentenced to 50 years to serve. So he was 43 in 2007. So 50 years, he would have been, what, over 90. So that's virtually a life sentence. He was sentenced to that for the vicious murder of Monica Massaro. And I don't want to get back into the details, but he had literally eviscerated her body. So he goes on to Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania has the death penalty. They just don't use it frequently. I believe at the time of this case was going on, 2010, there was 225 people on death row in Pennsylvania since 1974, but only three had been executed. Pennsylvania has this aggravated circumstances criteria you have to meet to be executed. And people were confident that Lane had checked all the boxes for this aggravated circumstance. So he was eligible to be put to death. But there was some legal wrangling. Lane eventually in Pennsylvania 
threatened his female attorney, and she was so frightened she had to back out of the case. A new, more flamboyant attorney was appointed for Lane, and prosecutors soon approached the victim's family, Darlene Ewald's family, and asked if they'd accept a plea of life in prison without the possibility of parole. They ultimately agreed after much hand-wringing because they just didn't want to see this guy ever in public again. I'm wondering if this was a mistake, but, you know, it's hard to go against the family's wishes. The death penalty was created for people like Adam Lane, so he is thoroughly deserving of it, but he ended up taking a plea bargain for the murder of Darlene, and he was sentenced to life without parole. So all of these women got some semblance of justice. Adam Lane is serving the life without parole sentence at a big boy prison in Pennsylvania. It's called the State Correctional Institute Fayette. And this is a punishment jail. So I hope every day for him is the hell that he gave his victims. I'm going to leave you there, guys. I believe he deserved the needle. The families agreed, though, to a deal, and this guy is in big boy prison, and I hope all of his days are miserable. So guys, if you want to read more about this, a lot of my research in this case came from Jeannie McDonough's book, Caught in the Act. She has a co-author with her, Paul Leonardo, and this was a great read. The story's also been profiled on 48 Hours in Dateline. And I believe Dateline is the one with Hoda Copy, and they get all of the victims' families together. And it's an excellent episode if you want to check it out on Dateline. But I'll link the book in my show notes if you want to pick it up on Amazon. Definitely worth a read. I'm going to leave you there, guys. Get on to the next one. Have a good weekend.